imagine, imagine with me that you're laying awake in the middle of the night. And for some of you, that's not hard to imagine because it happens most every night, but, but this night in particular, you're worried. You're in a panic. Like, we're talking palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's something weird on your sweater. You can't figure it out, but it must be spaghetti. Something like that, right? A few of you get it. It's cool. And you're laying awake in this panic, and all you're worried about is what you're going to drink tomorrow. And for some of you, that sounds crazy, right? Like, you're worried about what your job's going to be like. You're worried about whether or not you're going to get laid off. You're worried about whether or not your kids are going to grow up or get out of the house. They're 35. It's time for them to leave. You know, like, whatever it is for some of you, you're worried about a lot of things, but drinking water certainly isn't anywhere on your list of worries, is it? But for something like two-thirds of the world, that's a pretty normal concern. And what's even crazier is if you go back in time about 200 years or so, for all of the world, it was a pretty decent concern. The drinking water was unsafe. It made everyone sick all of the time. Almost no one drank water for that reason because it was so dangerous and unhealthy. And that kind of started to change in the mid-1800s, but a revolution started to happen in 1859 in London, England, when someone invented the very first public clean water drinking fountain. And I know that to us, that sounds like a minor deal, right? Like, we have two water fountains here. I guarantee you most of them haven't even, most of you probably haven't even thought about the fact that there's two here and you can use it at any time. But for the people of London in 1859... It was a cause for a national holiday and a great celebration. They estimate that over 7,000 people drank from the water fountain that day, which is a lot of germs at a water fountain at once. There was this, people were traveling from miles across borders all over the place to try and come just to get a glimpse of the great water fountain of London. And you'll walk by three or four today and not even think twice about it. People didn't think much about water fountains a few years later as they kind of started to become the norm until the late 40s when segregation started to become a really normalized thing. And then all of a sudden water fountains were a big deal again because people weren't getting to use the same water fountain and people didn't have the same rights that they had deserved as others. But then as as the Jim Crow South faded and the segregation laws were ended, again, water fountains kind of faded in the back of everyone's mind. In the year 2009, the University of Central Florida built a football stadium on their campus for their college football team. And no one had thought about water fountains, including the people building the stadium. So they got to the stadium, and they had opening day, and quickly everyone realized there's no place for a water fountain here. So everyone started buying up all the water from the concession stands, and the concession stands ran out of water in the middle of the second quarter. So in the middle of an Orlando summer, and (laughs) there's no water to be had in the entire stadium, and nine people had to be escorted from the game by ambulance because they were having heat-related illness because no one had bothered to think about something as basic as a water fountain. And now, you're all a little bit more thirsty than you remember, right? Everybody's going, is it time for communion yet? Just a little bit of grape juice. But this is a weird thing, isn't it? You don't think about water. It's a basic thing that you have at the touch of a button, at the turn of a faucet, anytime you want. So if someone were to come to you today promising all of the water you can imagine, you're going to go, cool, I already have it. So that, that happens a lot to a lot of us, is that 
when someone promises to meet our basic needs, we go, I can do that on my own, right? No politician this year is standing on a stage like this one speaking to a group at a rally saying, I promise that if you vote for me, you'll always have enough food to eat and enough water to drink. Everybody's like, I better, like, duh. Instead, what happens is politicians promise more taxes or less taxes, depending on who your preference is, more rights or less rights, depending on how you view all of it, and anything they can to get a vote. But all of it eventually goes away. Nations rise and fall, economies crumble and prosper. All of it eventually goes away. The difference, and the difference we've been trying to figure out through these last three weeks of this series, A Political Jesus, is that Jesus promises a life that is difficult and a life that involves sacrifice, but a reward that is eternal. And so when it comes to following Jesus, it almost looks as if you have two choices. The choice over here is to put all of your hope, all of your fears, all of your anxiety on a politician, on, on a person who's running for office and say, you can give me what I want, you can give me what I, what I think I need, you can give me my greatest heart's desire, or your choice over here is to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. But what Jesus promises is much different than what most politicians promise. Most politicians will promise you less sacrifice, less hardship, and more gain. And Jesus promises something entirely different. Jesus says, I'm going to meet your basic needs, but I'm also going to expect you to make sacrifices. I'm also going to expect you to give up yourself. And so I think that for a lot of us, the tendency is to be drawn this way because I'd rather trust my money, I'd rather trust my stuff, I'd rather trust my own self versus having to give up for anything. And you'll notice that I very clearly say most of us because I'm with you. Because I'm not always sure in my own selfish heart that this is where I want to go. But here's the thing about following Jesus, is Jesus isn't just interested in getting a little bit of us. Jesus is after our entire heart. Jesus isn't after what's left over after that politician. He's not after what's left over after work. He's not after what's left over after this or that. Jesus is after all of our heart. And so I think for some of us, it's time we took a little bit of a, a test to figure out where is our heart. And so here's, here's kind of what I, what I kind of put together as a test for what our heart reflects, because this is, this is how this works. If my heart is fully devoted to Jesus, then it's reflected at least in these three areas. There's many more, but these are the three we chose for today. If my heart is fully devoted to Jesus, it, it's reflected in my calendar, it's reflected in my bank account, and it's reflected in, in the words that trigger me. It's reflected in my calendar because no matter what else is happening in my day, no matter what else is happening in my week, I've carved out time to dedicate and prioritize who Jesus is to me, right? This isn't the sermon about you better come to church or Jesus is going to be mad at you. This is the sermon about making sure that in your life, that in your day, that in your routine, that there are moments carved out for you to be following after Jesus. It's reflected in your calendar. If you're so busy, if you're so overwhelmed, if you're so, if you're so crowded that you can't make room to follow Jesus, to love other people, to love people like Jesus would, to love Jesus like he wants us to, then your heart is not reflective of, of Jesus having all of it. The second, way that, the second test is, 
how your bank account reflects how you feel about Jesus. And again, this isn't a sermon about you better put all your money in the offering plate or Jesus hates you. This is just a reflection. If all of my money is devoted to things that I want and things that I think I need and things that I think I should get, and none of it's devoted to things that I don't benefit from, and none of it's devoted to things that are going to cost me, then I'm not sure that our heart reflects that we're following Jesus. And the third way that we can check that it, check to see if our heart is fully focused on Jesus is the trigger words. If there's words or phrases or ideas that automatically make our blood boil, if there's signs, if there's companies, if there's things that make us angry at the drop of a hat that aren't the same things that would make Jesus angry, that aren't the same things that God says make him angry, then our heart probably isn't where it needs to be. And we find ourselves over here putting too much trust in something that's going to eventually go away. You see, this is the this is the biggest promise that Jesus makes. It's not that he's going to just make your life happy, but it's that Jesus is the only thing that doesn't fade, the only thing that doesn't disappear. And he makes these promises in Matthew chapter 6, if you want to turn there. We've been studying this together for the last couple weeks, and we said this is Jesus' great stump speech, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so as Jesus breaks into the promises of what his kingdom will bring, he starts with a very simple promise. And he says, if you put your hope in stuff, if you put your hopes in things, they're going to break, they're going to be stolen, they're going to rust. So if everything that matters to you is a tangible object, eventually it goes away. If everything that matters to you matters only on this earth, eventually it will go away. In my garage, um, there's a, a shelf on top of where we park the car, and there are several totes on that shelf. There's, there's totes full of little kids' clothes. There's totes full of, you know, winter clothes and storage items and stuff. But over on the far right of, of our garage, there's, there's a green tote, and it's a box. It's just a, a green Rubbermaid box. And inside of that box is things that if you were to get that box, you would immediately throw it away. In fact, if you were to, I don't know, say, marry me seven years ago, you would see this box and immediately try and throw all of it away. That's hypothetically speaking, of course. So the green box has survived seven years of marriage because if you look inside the green box, it looks pretty insignificant to most of you. It's things like my practice jersey from my high school football team, my laundry bag from high school football. Um, it's a couple mementos from the time I got to go to an all-star game in Detroit. Uh, there's some scrapbooks and some team pictures. And there's a bunch of stuff in the green box that matters only to Ben. 
It has been a point that's been made clear to me several times by Whitney that this box only matters to Ben. But it's, it's this weird box because it's important to me. It's made three moves. It's, it's been around for a long time. But if the house was on fire, the green box goes. If the house floods, it's not the first thing I'm after. The green box is this thing that's important to me, but I, I fully realize and fully know that I can do without that. But every time I think about the green box, every time I, I, I put something else in the green box, I'm reminded that everything I own, including the kids' clothes in the gray box, including all of the, the secret documents in the other box that I'm going to pretend like is there. I don't really have one of those, but it would make the story way more interesting. Including all of the things in the garage, the tools, the cars, the lawnmowers, all of it, all of it is just like the stuff in the green box. That in the end, it doesn't actually matter. And so when I symbolically put something in the green box, it reminds me that if the house burns down, if nuclear war happens, if doomsday comes and I have to go live in a bunker somewhere, none of this matters. So my question for you is, what are you going to put in your green what is it time for you to say, I've got to stop holding on to this like it matters and put it somewhere that I can get it if I want it, that I can hold on to it if I feel like it, but in the end, it doesn't matter to anyone or anything other than me, and it's time for me to let it go. What's in your green box? What is it time for you to put there for the first time and say, this is just a thing? Jesus continues in verse 25, and he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor they gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Have you ever stopped and thought about the birds? Not the birds and the bees, you pervs. Get your mind out of the gutter. Have you ever stopped and thought about birds? Birds don't have long-term five-year plans. Birds don't make a lot of arrangements. Birds just simply live in this moment. And so what Jesus is trying to tell his people here as they're listening is he's saying, I want you to hear me when I say the birds don't worry and they are just birds. So you as humans, as people, as the people created in God's own image, why are you worried about the very things that those insignificant birds aren't worried about? 
And he says, and look at the flowers. They grow up out of the ground, and then the next day, everyone throws them away. They're just grass, and they look beautiful, and they look perfect, and they're well cared for. Why are you worried more than them? I think the reason most of that happens if, if we're being really honest, the reason we worry a lot about what we wear, about what we'll eat, about what people will think of us is because we find ourselves over here a lot trying to put our hope in, if I dress just right, if I, if I look just right, if I wear just right, if I drive just right, then everything else will be okay. But I want you to hear this, and you've heard me say it before, but it's important, that God promises to meet every need not every greed. God promises to supply our every need, not our every greed. And so that doesn't mean that because he says the clothes are, or the, the flowers are more, more splendorous than us, that doesn't mean that you're going to have a closet full of Louis and Polo. Because he, because he says the birds don't worry about what they eat, it doesn't mean that you're going to be eating Chef Ramsay's food every night. I don't, is there another famous chef that anyone knows? Dave, or Dave Ramsay. <laughs> chef Ramsay on the, I don't know. Anyways, we'll move on. But <laughs> just because he promises what you need, it doesn't mean your house is going to be featured on HGTV anytime soon. He promises to supply our every need, not our every greed. And he asks this question that for some of us might need to be just painted over top of our bedroom. And as we lay awake at night, the only thing we can see, and he asks this question, or he says, makes this statement, he says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus says, if the first and top priority of your life is the kingdom of God, then all of your needs will be taken care of. If the first thing you're worried about, if the only thing you care about is love Jesus and love like Jesus, if your life is based around that mantra and every decision you make is filtered through that, all of your needs are taken care of. And then he kind of transitions and he shifts into another promise that, to be honest, is a more more important promise than he'll take care of our physical needs here on earth. Because the next promise that Jesus makes is the promise of what we call eternity. Is the promise of forever. And he says this in chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log in your own. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so Jesus then says what is probably the most quoted Bible verse by people who don't follow Jesus. Do not judge, man. And I always laugh when people will respond to that statement by saying something like, only God can judge me, because my first reaction to that is always, yeah, that should scare you more than me. (laughs) Who cares what I have to say? He knows everything. But it's it's an important promise for us to hear. The promise is that, that, that we will be judged. But the second part to that promise is that if you're willing to forgive, 
then you can be forgiven. When he says the very measure that you use will be used against you, he's telling us, he's saying, if you're willing to forgive the people in your life, then you can be forgiven by Jesus. Hear me out. God promises that you will be forgiven as much as you forgive. How does that sound to you? How does that equal out in your life? Because if you start keeping tally and you start thinking through all of the times you haven't forgiven and all of the grudges that you're still holding and all of the wrongs that have been done to you, the list gets long, right? He said this, she did that, they went there, and it grows and it grows and it grows. But what Jesus is promising is he's promising that if you use that measure of forgiveness against someone else, it will be measured against you. So the time you're holding the grudge over the thing that person said, it means that God has yet to forgive the time that you said. The time you're holding the grudge over the lie they told means that the lie you told is still hanging over your head. The time you've chosen not to forgive because of how they hurt X, Y, and Z means that the time you hurt A, B, and C is still on you. My friends, I I, want to share with you and I want to guarantee you that God has a promise for you that will not fade. That God has a, a, a promise to his kingdom that will not go away. And the reason that for the last three weeks, all we've talked about is how unimportant politics is in the light of God's kingdom is because of what we're about to read. And I want you to hear me out. I don't think that we should ignore politics. I don't think that that we need to just shy away from it. I think we need to understand that far more importance needs to be placed on the kingdom of God than the kingdom of man. And the reason it needs to happen is because of what Jesus says in these next few verses. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, gives him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? What is the most important promise of the kingdom of heaven? The most important promise that Jesus makes us is the promise of eternity. You see, what's going to happen somewhere between the next hour and hundred years is that each one of us in this room is going to pass away. Each one of us in this room is going to stop breathing, our brain is going to stop working, our heart is going to stop beating, and the end comes for us. And the question then becomes, what happens next? If we've placed all of our hope 
in things, if we've placed all of our hope in money, if we've placed all of our hope in policy, if we've placed all of our hopes in looks and other people, what's going to happen next is an eternity of suffering and torment. We're going to the place where, where destruction happens. But if we have placed all of our hope, all of our life, all of our dreams at the feet of Jesus, then what happens next is forgiveness and an eternity in the place where there is no pain, where there are no tears. An eternity in the place where we can forever know the joy, where we can forever know goodness. The promise of Jesus has nothing to do with earthly gain and has everything to do with the promise of heaven. Here in the next few moments, the the men are going to pass out the bread and the cup. And every week we come to this point when we pass out the bread and the cup. And this week I want it to, to just look a little bit different for our own sake. I want, to, I want to flash back a couple minutes ago when we said the very measure that you use will be used against you. And so I want you in your mind to start thinking about the word forgiveness. And who is it that you need to offer forgiveness to? So as the bread and as the cup come, you might want to take them and just hold on to them for a second. That's okay. Pass, continue to pass the trays and just hold them. And just start going down the list in your mind of the people who, who their name still kind of ends up like a trigger word for you. Start going through the people who you've never quite gotten over the grudge of what they did to you. And maybe today for the first time, release that anger. Let go of that grudge. Maybe today for the very first time, forgive that person. Because the reason I want you to do that is because the next step is for you to take the bread and to take the cup and to remember the promise that Jesus made to his disciples that night that this, this piece of bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood poured out for you. And for you to say, because I have forgiven them, because I have forgiven them and those and what, now I can be forgiven. Or maybe you need to hear it the opposite way, and that's okay too. Maybe the first thing you need to do is take the bread and take the cup and remember that Jesus has forgiven a lifetime of wrongs amongst you. A lifetime of lies and adultery and theft. A lifetime of, of hate. A lifetime of anger. A lifetime of greed. Jesus forgave all of that. And he's saying, now I want you to forgive in the same way that I did. But I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you to take your time in this moment. And really cherish and really relish in the moment. And understand that we are forgiven.
Will you stand with me?